0: The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus' people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered, missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement in Mark chapter 9. We're walking through the book of Mark here uh, for a couple of months. Um, and we're, we're, we've seen from the beginning of Mark, the very beginning of Mark, uh, Jesus' message um, when he talks about like what he came to do, uh, what he came to accomplish. Uh, he says it very clearly in pretty much all the gospels at the beginning of the gospel. If you'll read it, he'll say exactly what he kind of came to do. Um, in in each of those books and here in the gospel of mark he said early on he said repent and follow me the kingdom of heaven is near and when he said that he meant i'm here it's me all everything you've heard about in the old testament all the promises that you've seen about god and what he's going to do and how he's going to save his people and and all these things he's like that's me And I'm here and I've come, follow me, be a part of what I'm doing in this world. And it's going to get clearer, that message and and his mission mission are are going to get clearer, Uh, really the closer he gets to the the cross. um, He's going to get even clearer uh, with what he has come to do and the mission that he has. So we're going to see that actually, um, fully revealed, I think today in the text that we're going to look at. So Mark chapter nine, uh, verse 14, we're going to see, like I said, a lot more clarity, uh, what it is that Christ came to do. So, uh, chapter nine, verse 14 says, when they come back to the disciples, they see a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with, with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, saw Jesus, They were amazed, and they began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they they have this fascinating, incredible, intense uh, uh, encounter here with another person who is demon possessed, and we've seen this before in this gospel. Uh, where Jesus um, was, was confronted with this. There's this big commotion. And what's happening here, it says that when he came back, so Jesus and, and the big three, we'll call them the big three, Peter, James, and John, he had them on a little field trip, okay? And, and he comes back with them, and there's this commotion that involves a, a demon-possessed child, the demon-possessed boy. It could even be a young man, not necessarily a child, um, but it's this, this man brings his boy so like who's there when there's this commotion and there's an argument going on, um, who's actually there? What's, who's there in this this uh, scene? Several people, and maybe you would relate to one of these groups of people, maybe more than another one. So the first thing that we see there is there's a big crowd. This was not unusual. Um, crowds followed Christ everywhere he went. Um, he actually tried to get away from the crowd several times just to rest or to kind of tamp down the the uh, celebrity worship that was probably going on. He, that was not why he came. And so uh, he dealt with crowds all the time. And here's what I would say about the crowd um, is that they're interested in Jesus, but they're not invested in Jesus. They're really interested in what's going on here, but they're not invested in what he's doing. So it's that whole thing where like, man, yeah, Jesus is cool, and he says some cool stuff, and he does some neat things. And, you know, I'll hang around, and I'll go to church every now and then. And maybe on a crazy day, when I get an extra hour of sleep, maybe I'll pray in my car. And maybe I'll sing with everybody in church, and maybe I'll just I'll sway to the music a little bit during worship time. But I'm not, I don't know if I'm really ready to go all in. I'm interested in the things of God, but I'm really not invested in the things of God. It's safer to kind of keep Jesus at arm's length just in case something doesn't work out. Just in case he can't do what he says he can do. Just in case my life doesn't, you know, in full of rainbows and unicorns after I follow him. I don't want to be totally discouraged, so I'm just not going to go all in. I'm going to hold back just a little bit and not fully invest and what it is that Jesus is doing. You know, and there's family. I want to be involved in friends and baseball and fun and dating. You know, there's just, there's stuff in my life that's better than Jesus. So you're in the crowd, but you haven't committed to faith. That's one, one uh, group of people that's there is just this crowd. Then you have another group of people in the crowd. And they're, they're religious experts. The, the, the text calls them scribes. I'm not going to get into who these people were. But they're religious experts, okay? Jewish religious experts. And some of you are kind of, maybe you relate to them just a little bit more. Here's what I would say to you about them. And I heard this last week, and I think it's great, and I'm going to totally use it. You can't receive Jesus and judge him at the same time. You you can't look at the way Jesus taught and the way that Jesus said who he said he was. In other words, you can't approach the gospel and say, I really like some of the things that Jesus said. But when he says he's God... That sounds crazy. I am not good with that. Right? When Jesus says the only way that you can have a relationship with my father is through me and that your works are as dirty, filthy rags and there's nothing you can do to be good enough to get to God. I work really hard to be a good person. I don't know if I can buy that off. You can't receive Christ and judge him at the same time. You want to debate theology and some of the deeper ideas of God and like the meaning of life and the universe and maybe really deep in your heart you want to be justified in your anger with God or your anger with religion or anger with other people who have hurt you and you just assume you're better than somebody. These people just assume that there is some group of people, I'm better than them. I'm just better, I'm at least I'm not great, but at least I'm not them. You you would relate really well with the religious leaders of the day. They thought they were better than other people. In and of themselves by being good, by trying to be good. There's no room for faith because you're the expert on morality and personal spirituality. Why would you need faith? You're really good at being good. You're really good at being religious. So I don't really need much faith. I'm just going to pray really hard. I'm going to rub some beads together when I pray. I'm going to say 10 prayers a day. I'm going to fast every other Wednesday. Why would I need to have faith? I'm good at being good. You would relate well to the religious leaders. Then there's the disciples. I would say the disciples have this like immature faith. And I don't know another way to say it. They, they believe in Christ, but it just hasn't matured yet. It hasn't grown up yet, right? Almost incomplete And you see some of that language in the New Testament that there's, for those of us who follow Christ and and we really are doing our best to sort of submit to him and follow his ways, that there's something about us that's still sort of incomplete, right, and immature. So I think you see that here with the disciples. They really are trying to do good things, you know. They're doing their best to do the things that they're supposed to do, but they're doing it without God's power, here it seems in this text that there's just there's no prayer. Whatever it is they're trying to do, they're not praying about it. They're not taking it to the Lord. They're not invoking, I guess, the power of God into their lives and depending on him. And Jesus is going to rebuke them for that a little bit later. They have just enough theology to be a little arrogant and ignorant at the same time. Right? It's that whole thing of like you don't know what you don't know. You know, but sometimes we know enough that we think we know more than we know, right? And I think they're in that place. They know just enough about Jesus that they feel really good about following him, but then they just hit these walls consistency, consistently in their lives because they don't know. And they haven't learned that part of humility. It's part of the, the growing up process, I think, in the Lord and maturing in him. Maturity in Christ is gonna push you toward humility. And I think toward clarity, actually. I think things become a lot more clear Uh, About my walk with God, when I recognize what I can't do, you know, as opposed to I'm really good, you know. So I think humility will drive us a little bit toward that. Um, Tim Keller says this. He says the disciples tried to tried prayerless exorcism, casting the demon out for the same reason they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. And if you read the text, you see that like Jesus will say, "I've got to die. Son of Man has to be abused and you know killed and all that." And they just don't get it. Like they, it's beyond their comprehension. He says they couldn't cast out a demon for the same reason they didn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and proud they were, they underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. So maybe you see yourselves in one of those groups of people. You're in the crowd. You think the God thing is kind of cool. Jesus can do some neat things. I'm not invested in that. I'm not ready for that yet. You're part of the religious crowd. And generally, we don't want to be associated with any of these people. We don't like the definition, you know, the description of any one of them. But maybe you're like the religious people, and you're like, I'm good. I'm really good. You know? Or you're the disciples and you're immature and you, you consistently find yourself trying to live a Christian life and follow Jesus without the power of Christ in your life. You're trying hard to do the right thing, but you're not doing it in a prayerful, humble way. So those are some of the groups that are here right there. Maybe you, again, relate to one of them. And it's very dramatic. You know, this whole scene sounds nuts, you know, uh, where the three guys or four guys come back off the mountain and there's this commotion and there's this demon-possessed young man and he's, you know, being thrown on the ground and they're arguing with each other, you know, and it's just crazy. It's very, very dramatic what's going on. I want to give you a, a little bit of context as to why this is such an important text, I think. And we're not going to go back. We don't have time to go back and look at it. But the first 13 verses of of Mark chapter 9 are what's called the transfiguration. And it's one of the weirdest sections of Scripture you're going to read in the Gospels. It really is. It's one of the strangest things that happens in the life of Christ. But he comes down from this really literally mountaintop experience with God um, where the power of God in Christ And on Christ has been fully revealed. So this is hard for us to understand. When Jesus became a a, a baby, when he came in the form of a man, Christmas, which we're a couple of three or five, you know, six weeks away from. When he comes at Christmas time, the glory, the deity of God is somehow shrouded and contained in this fallen little form of a human being. Like, I don't understand that at all, at all. Somehow or another, God is able to keep those two things coexistent at the same time, right? 100% man, 100% God. At the same time, people can interact with Jesus. People can touch him. People can handle him. People can look at him and not die. Because he has the glory of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, he takes Peter, James, and John either because they're his favorites, which I'm okay with that. Okay? Maybe they're his favorites, or maybe they're the three knuckleheads who are gonna get in trouble. So he's like, I gotta keep an eye on you guys. Y'all come with you guys come with me, you know? Takes him up to the top of the mountain, and his glory is revealed. It says his clothes are shining, and his face is radiating with the glory of God. And two dead old testament prophets show up and have a conversation with him, Moses and Elijah. Man, I wish we had time to just dig into what all that means, because it's amazing. But this is what they're coming down from. They've had this mountaintop experience, so much so Peter is literally now, he is convinced, oh my gosh, this guy is the son of God. There was a Jewish tradition that the Messiah was going to come during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would build these booths, like these uh, cruddy shacks, and people would live in them during the celebration to remind them of the time that they wandered in the desert, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And Peter's like, this is it. We're going to build shacks and stay here. The Messiah has come. I get it now, you know. I've seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So that's what they're coming down from. And, and I think one of the reasons this is so amazing and so important for our text, what's happening here is, is Jesus is like fully revealing everything about himself. In the book of Mark and I think the book of Luke, You have these instances where Jesus does these crazy, amazing things, and then he looks at people and he says, don't tell anybody. How do you do that? You just made it where I can talk, right? You just made it where I can hear. You just got me off a pallet that I was, you know, been on my entire life. You just took a demon out of my child. How do I not tell somebody about that, you know? But he's not interested in hero worship. He's not interested in celebrityism, you know? So he doesn't want that crowd growing up around him even though it did. Here's this place, though, where he fully reveals, and he's like, listen, I came in a tiny little shed, a a manger, to these poor people in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. What I'm about to do is about to be done in front of the whole world. I'm about to be very conspicuous about what I'm doing. At this point up to now, maybe some of it's been hidden and it's been kind of behind the scenes, but I'm about to do it on this world stage. And here's what he's about to do. We're like, yes, the secrets of the universe are going to be revealed to us, right? Everything God has for us is going to be shown to us. Here's what I think is important. Moses, I mean, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, they weren't taken by the fact that necessarily Moses was there and Elijah was there. They didn't walk down with 10 stone tablets, you know, that had stuff written on them. What they came away with was a full revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's what we get. Here's what God's about to do through Jesus. Fully reveal who he is and his heart for us. Some of us are bummed out by that. We're like, wait a minute, I want the secrets of life. I got a lot of questions, man, you know? And God says, I know, but here's the, here's the thing you need to know the most. The glory of my son. The beauty and the glory and the majesty of the fact that I have sent my son to live among you, to live a perfect life, and to redeem you when you have no business having anything to do with me. That's what you need to know. That I welcome you into my family through the glory of my son, being hidden in the form of a man and killed like a criminal. That's what you need to know. And that he did it because I love you. That's what you need to know. That is the secret of the universe, guys, that the God of the universe wants to call us his children. And he's made it possible for that to happen. Amen. We all should just say amen to that. We have no business being in that, in that regard, in that, in that company of people. But God makes it possible for us. He's like, I'm going to show you the deepest parts and the hearts of God, heart of God, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. There is intimacy with Jesus. And I forget, Oh, we were reading a book, our, our men's group here at the church, we were reading a book together. There is intimacy with Jesus, and he wants to be our friend, and he wants to hold us close, and he wants us to be able to sing these love songs to him. I don't think that's a weird, creepy thing at all. I think it's beautiful, and we should. He wants us to sing the love of our heart to him. But the fact of the matter is the intimacy with Jesus goes hand in hand with the holiness of Jesus. Are you, re- are you prepared for that? Show me your glory. Are you really prepared for that? Are you really ready For God, for Christ to unveil himself to you and to shatter you and to break you and to show you how beautiful he is and how completely undeserving you are. Are you really ready for that? There is intimacy with Christ. These three guys are there and they see it and they're amazed by it. They want to stay there. But there is an unapproachable holiness, right, to the person of Christ that is radiant And it continues to shine light on the parts of our hearts that we would rather stay in the dark. And we've got to be prepared for that when we come to him. I want to point this out. Two times this happens in Jesus' life. There's this, he's shining, he's glowing. The glory of God in him has been revealed. And a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. And this is my son. In whom I am well pleased. He basically echoes what he says at Jesus' baptism when he starts his ministry. And he says it again. Listen, God, is glory. he is taking glory in the person of Jesus. He delights in his son. And he's looking at the three guys which stand in our place. And he's like, you need to look at Jesus and take delight in him. What do you delight in? Some of you are like, I don't understand what that means, Pastor Joe. What do you delight in? What brings joy to your heart? Can you think of anything Little Debbies, you know, something. Anything. Just what brings joy and delight to your heart? And you can set your your mind's eye on that, can't you? Right? You can put your mind's eye on that. That makes me happy. God looks at them and he looks at me and you and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God thinks of Jesus and his heart leaps for joy. And he wants us to put our eyes on Jesus and go, gosh, that brings me great joy. The person of Jesus makes my heart happy. Put your eyes on him and see him. God takes delight in Jesus, and so should you and I. So that's what's happening here, and they're walking out of that. So they come down off of that mountain into this just scrum, you know, this melee that's kind of happening at the bottom of the mountain here as they come back down. The Holy Spirit and Mark uh, are both reminding us to keep our focus to keep our eyes on Christ. In particular, here's the other thing I want you to understand, and again, we've we've lost some of this in in our probably renewed worship-filled, western evangelical entertainment-based Christianity. Here's what we've lost. The glory of Christ and the reason that God is so overjoyed with Jesus is because he dies on a cross for our sins. The reason Christ receives a name that is above all names, and he's put at the right hand of honor of his Father in heaven, is because he dies on a cross for our sins. Because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that we need to have our hearts totally undone and recreated, and it's made possible by the work of Christ. That is why we are supposed to take delight in him. He's beautiful in and of himself, because he's part of the Trinity. But he has come as a man and died for you and me. And the gospel, the good news of Christ, causes my heart to even be able to leap with joy. I wouldn't have the capacity to do it if it wasn't for what Christ did on the cross. So everything, they're just reminding us, the gospel, the the book of, of Mark is reminding us that everything is centered on the gospel, the good work of Jesus Christ. So I really think we're nine chapters in. And I think Mark, and I think Peter, who's helping Mark write this probably, and the Holy Spirit is kind of looking at the 12 disciples, and he's like, hey, are you guys paying attention? Don't be distracted, guys. Pay close attention to what I'm doing here. Are the disciples paying attention to what's going on, or have they been distracted by touching lepers and seeing demon-possessed people being set free and healings? Are you, have you become distracted in your desperate call for God to move and to do something that God of miracles come and God of miracles move and do something and if you become distracted by that that you've taken your eyes off of the glory of Christ because that's really easy to do it's very easy in our desperation in life to take our eyes off the glory of Christ because he saved us and exchange it for you are glorious because you can do something about my pain And those are not the same focal points in our hearts. And I really believe in the middle of this text, middle of Mark, this transfiguration happens. And the Holy Spirit's like, don't forget why Christ is so glorious. Don't forget why he's worthy of your heart's attention and your heart's joy and your heart's affection. When you think about following Jesus... You got to understand that you're going to plot a course for yourself that begins with following him to the cross and then gaining everything you need for joy because of the cross. Always remember that about following him. Last thing I want to, I told you I could just stay on the transfiguration forever. The other thing I would say about this, I, I, I'm fairly type A, I'm type D, I'm not nearly as smart as most of y'all in the room I want to learn as much about Christ as I possibly can. Like I want to shove as much information in my head and my body as I can about who Jesus is, you know, and I find myself like devouring certain things about that and just constantly shoving things into my head. I want to learn as much as I can. Here's what's a little difficult for me, but I love it. I'm a little older now and I'm beginning to really, really love this part of it. There is this mystical aspect to following Christ that I'll never understand. There is a huge, part of this infinite God in the person of Jesus Christ, I'll never grasp it. And I, we, you and I, and the disciples, and every follower of Christ, we've got to kind of embrace this mystical part of following God. I think we can overplay that and make it something that it's not supposed to be, but I think we can lose it too. In our desire to know more about God and to have a right thinking about him, we can lose just this mystical aspect of following a living, eternal person, right? Some of us have been married for quite a while and maybe longer than Mindy and I have. It's still a mystery. Nothing wrong with her. I'm sure I'm just a freaking mystery to you, just as weird as you are to me sometimes, you know? It's been a long time, y'all. We've been together since we were 16, 17 years old, and I'm 14 now. So it's been a while. That came out on the podcast like, for sure, that's good. Nobody knows. I'm older now, y'all, still a mystery, and we're finite people. How much more mysterious is the infinite God that my mind can't even comprehend? There's some mystical aspect to following Jesus, and i got to, like, embrace that and let him be the person that he is in my life and do what he wants to do. Amen? Do we get that? So I'm going to call out to him to do the impossible and do the supernatural and follow him. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. And then just this is a relationship. Let's walk together. Amen. So I think that's a huge part of the transfiguration and what's going on focusing on Christ He comes down and I think in another way. Jesus is like, okay, do you guys get it? Yes I'm glorious and god is on me and the power of god and i'm glowing and all this stuff And we're going to go back down into this world and he's like, listen guys, do y'all get it? Are you really paying attention to what's going on here? We are nine chapters in And if you people down here want to know more about me, talk to the big three that I just brought down, the field trip guys. Ask them what we just saw. Talk to them about what they just experienced. I want you to believe in who I am and to trust me with everything in your life. Do you all understand that that's like the whole point? It's not healings and it's not the mystery of the transfiguration. It is I want you to trust me with everything in your life and believe in who I am. And I'm going to show you If the glory hasn't shown you, I'm going to show you once again what it looks like to believe in me and to trust me for everything in your life. Now that's a, do you understand that's a comprehensive statement? I got two amens when I said that, but I think everybody's kind of shaking their head because it's Sunday. So you're agreeing with the pastor for the most part. Yes, trust God with everything. Do you realize how, what a giant statement that is? I'm going to trust God with everything. I'm going to believe in who Jesus is, and I'm going to trust him with everything. So what is the thing that causes you the most fear in life? Are you trusting him with that? Because Christ is looking at us, and he's like, have you seen my glory? I'm going to come into your ugly world, and your broken and evil world, and I'm going to show you what it looks like to believe in me and to trust me. Because I know you're thick-headed people, right? We are. Look in chapter 9, verse 19. The story continues. He says, oh my gosh, unbelieving generation. See, believing, trusting. How long will I put up with you? How long shall I put up with you and live with you? Bring him to me. They bring the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion. Falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked that. And he said, from childhood. it has often thrown him both, both into the fire and to the water to destroy him. Then he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I am thrilled that the Bible puts this text in here. I'm so happy. You know, I'm so happy it's not. And the man believed perfectly and he began to glow. And then the demon came out of his child, you know, and he didn't have to microwave his food anymore. He just looked at it intensely, you know. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that that's not this story. I'm so glad that this man comes to him already shattered and broken. Do you understand that? Like he's just beaten down. Then he goes to the people, he goes to his followers and he said, hey, I already asked these guys to do it and they couldn't do it then he asked that question he's like you know if you can do anything there is not one part of this man's story up to this point that you and i would look at and go what great faith you have we would say the opposite right we would say man your faith is awful bro you need to get yourself together you know pull yourself together a little bit believe better (laughs) believe more you know that's that's probably how we would respond to him i'm just so glad this is here this this dad hurting broken dad comes and he's got this imperfect faith his faith has all kinds of holes in it right it's literally a sinking ship his faith is just a sinking ship at this point he's been disappointed by other people he's been made harder because of past attempts that failed And he's really, at this point, he's not sure God can do much about this. But here's what's amazing. Jesus, this is the man Jesus replies to. It's in this state of a fraction of a mustard seed of faith that Jesus responds to, which should give us incredible hope. That should give all of us amazing hope that it's in this broken place that Jesus goes, I'll do something about that. I hear that, I see that, and I'll respond to that. It's absolutely beautiful. We would actually expect the opposite, and most of us would probably begin to beat ourselves up for not praying the right way or not believing the right way or not having enough faith. So what's the difference in this man? Like, what is the deal here? Why is Christ, what is Christ seeing in him? Again, Tim Keller says this, He says, and I love this. He says, through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. This boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I am riddled with doubts, and I can't under my strength find the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges. But help me, that is saving faith. Faith in Jesus instead of yourself. Perfect righteousness is impossible for us, and if you wait for that, you will never come into the presence of God. You will always find yourself outside the door going, I'm not good enough yet. You must admit that you are not righteous and that you need help, When you can say that, you are approaching God to worship him. Whew, that's a big amen there, man. Every other person in this story, we looked at these groups of people. Every other person in this story has a wrongly directed faith. And I need you to understand that. Every other group of people that we've looked at in this story has a wrongly directed faith. Because faith always has an object. I'm always putting my faith in something or someone. Right, So their faith is just directed at the wrong thing. It's either faith in faith, or faith in self, or faith in a system. It's not perfect buckets and truckloads of faith that Jesus is looking for. It is imperfect trust. Imperfect trust in a capable and faithful Jesus. That is what Jesus is looking for. Do you all understand that? It's an imperfect trust. This is basically, God, if this relationship between me and you is dependent on how much I trust you, I am doubly hosed. I'm doubly sunk. If this depends on my sincerity, if this depends on my ability to continue to believe in you, I'm I'm just sunk. I have this much, and I don't even know if it's worth anything. You're the only person I can come to. You're the only person that I can even hope to trust someday. And I don't know how much I've got now. Can, can you do something? And Jesus responds to that. Thank God. Jesus responds to that. Some of us in this room need to be reminded to quit beating ourselves up because we don't believe well enough or we don't pray right enough, right? You understand what I'm saying? We've put so much weight in ourselves to believe rightly or to pray rightly or to faith the right way. And he, Jesus is like, I'll take that. I can't even see that. Just put it here, and I'll take it, and I'll act on that. This imperfect trust in this perfect God. So here's this man in the story, and I'm like, I know what God's trying to teach us, I think, in some ways, but I'm like, it's so counterintuitive. You know, this should not be sort of the hero of the story. Quite frankly, if you're going to identify with anybody in the story, the person that Jesus wants you to identify with is the man, which is cruddy because the son is demon possessed and he's tried everything he's in a place of hurting deep sorrow desperation and jesus is looking at us and he's going listen if you want to come to me you got to be like that if you want me to act in your life you know don't, don't pretend that everything's okay come to me in that absolute state of brokenness where you're not even sure if you can trust me but come to me i can work with that see what i'm saying it's really powerful, really freeing, really, really amazing what we're seeing here. So, here's this man. Dreams have been shattered. His son's life is at stake. That's not overstating it. He said it twice in the text that it's trying to kill him. His son's life is at stake. And this man is reaching out from the very bottom. From the very, very bottom, this man is reaching out. And we see this hopeless desperation. We talked about that last week. He is hopelessly desperate. And here, if you, take his, if you take his request and you flip it around into a prayer, change the language just a little bit, it's actually the kind of prayer that God is looking for. So just do that sometime. Take this man's statement, verses 21 through 22, reread it sometime, and then take it and make it your prayer. Just restate it. Take this man's words, fill in your details, and just make it a prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. And it's the kind of prayer that God is looking for. He says, if you can do anything, that little tiny word, it's small in the Greek language too, that little word if. In this context, if can mean several things, grammatically. In this text, it means this. This is probably too much for you to do. <laughs> so what if he had, what if he had premised his, his request with that? This is probably too much for you but if you could, and that's essentially what he's saying. Now, here's what's awesome about it. Jesus wasn't offended by that, was he? He encourages the man, doesn't he? Then he answers the man's tiny faith, broken faith, full admission of I don't have a lot of faith. Jesus is like, I know. I can work with that. I can move into that because you're out of the way. So there's a whole lot of things there. We want perfect prayers. We want better prayers. And I think Jesus, he does this several times. I think Jesus is looking at us. He's like, listen, just pray. Just talk to me. I don't need to be perfect. Matter of fact, there's really not a way you can screw this up unless you're going to be prideful and arrogant in your prayers. Just talk to me. Just pray to me. Take your cues from this man. Take your cues from the man dying on the cross. What a great prayer if there's any way you can have mercy on me, right? Take your cues from some of the Psalms where they just beat up and he's at the bottom. And he's like, I don't believe anything good can come out of this. We're not being told in scripture to have eloquent prayers. We're being told in scripture to talk to our father, to believe him and to trust him with everything in our lives. Just pray, just talk to him, listen to him. That's what he wants to have. That's what we see here that I think Jesus is trying to draw out of this man. He wants to draw it out of us too. We don't hope in our prayers. We don't hope in our faith. We hope in his perfect ability, the perfect ability of Christ. And here's what I would say. Theologically, Christ is qualified. That's a weird way to say it. But he's qualified to hear my prayers and to do something about it. He's able to. And he fits the qualities necessary, the prerequisites necessary to do something about my requests. So he's able to do something. He's qualified to do something. So here's, are you ready? Whatever it is you have, are you being afflicted by evil? We don't think about We're going to talk about that more in a second. We don't even think like that anymore. But are you being afflicted by evil? Are you stuck in yourself? This is our biggest blind spot. Some of us think we are Awesome. I have a t-shirt on it that says, I'm awesome. Some of us are just stuck in ourselves. We've quit following Jesus because the picture on the mirror has become our narcissistic ideal. I am pretty amazing. We're stuck in ourselves, right? So are you opposed by evil? Are you afflicted by evil? Are you stuck in yourself? Are you doubting that God even cares? Bring your little bit of faith and put the entire weight of your troubles and sins on Jesus and see what happens. The littlest bit. Man, if you can do, I don't even know if you can do anything about that. I got nowhere else to go. Would you? Could you? He hears that. He loves it and he responds to it. Not because you're a terrible person, because he knows you can't have the joy in life that you need unless you come to him getting yourself out of the way first. How does Jesus respond to this guy? Verse 25. Jesus sees the crowd that was rapidly gathering, and he rebukes the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, and he got up. How does he respond to this guy? How does he respond to him? Man, it's not eloquence. It's not the passion of the man. He responds to this man's pain and his trust. And again, we should say amen. Because sometimes that's all I have to talk to God about. This hurts more than I could have ever imagined hurting. This hurts. I don't have a lot, but I'll trust you this much. And Jesus sees that and he responds to it. Amen? Man, we should be thrilled that that part of the story is in here. Sorry, I'm going to screw up my notes guy. I'm going to go back west, sorry. He also says to him that the man who has faith for that man, anything is possible. I want to hit on that. That text is absolutely abused and misused so many times. I'm not going to totally get into it, but I want to talk a little bit about what I believe all of Scripture would mean by that statement. Everything is possible. Everything is possible for the person who has surrendered to God in faith. Well, I want wings and I want to fly across the world. Well, that's not going to happen, okay? So what does he mean? If it's not that or something is equally fantastic that I really need in my life, what is he talking about? Everything is possible for the person who has surrendered to God in faith. Everything God wants me to do in my life, or to have in my life that will honor Him is possible for the person who trusts in God. Everything God wants in my life, and everything God wants me to do with my life, that will bring honor to him, is possible when I believe in Him. And you're like, well what does that mean? If I can't have wings, what do I get? To care for and to pray for and to have a little bit of faith for a boy who is demon possessed. It's better than wings. To persevere with joy through loss of life, comfort, and income. To love my enemies. Did we catch that? To love my enemies. To trust God when he gives and when he takes away. To turn the other cheek. To forgive and let go. To love what is right and pure and holy. To be content with whatever state of life I'm in. To trust. To look with all of your heart towards Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. Some of us have our value system flipped around backwards. And the things that I talked about that, quite frankly, Jesus said are what comes with the kingdom isn't good enough for us. We need the spectacular. Because we've overvalued the things of this world. And Jesus looks at it and says, my character in you is the highest thing I can give you. And if you have faith in me, I will give it to you no matter what life brings your way. There is high value in the glory of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus being given to me. The man who has faith, the woman who has faith, will be given everything and will be able to do everything in their lives that bring honor and glory to the Lord. That's a big deal. That's how Jesus responds to this guy. There might be a couple... I think this is true. I think we could say biblically accurately that there are some reasons why god might limit his action i don't totally understand all of this but i think there are times in scripture when it's been made clear to us that god might choose to not act some of it's in the mystery of his will he's a he's a person and i'm going to let him do what he wants to do and then there are other times it's connected to certain things in life i think it's always so he can grow faith and give faith to us but i do think there are some things in this text, and he's going to be very clear about this, the disciples couldn't cast this demon out, remember? He does, but they can't do this. And they seem to be shocked because it looks like they've done it before. But they run up against this one and they can't do it. Here's what Jesus is calling out of them. Remember the Mount Transfiguration, where this all falls into. It's because of their prayerlessness and their faithlessness. These seem to be, throughout Scripture, Reasons why God says, I'm not going to move. Because you are prayerless and because you are faithless. I'm not going to move in that situation. It's not the amount of those things or being religiously acceptable in those things. It's being prayerful and faithful. If I'm strong... If I'm able, if I'm sufficient, prayer doesn't make any sense. And God doesn't have to act in in anything in my life. Paul Tripp says this. He says, prayer is by its very nature an abandonment of self and a rest in the power of God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is the most faithful thing I can do. Even when I feel like I don't have much faith in God. If I pray to him, I I am exhibiting faith. If I talk to him at some level or another, I'm going, I can't do this. I need you to do something. Which is exactly the right conditions, I guess you would say, for God to move and do something. So here's the big question here. We're going to wrap up. But man, are you praying? Would you say, I evaluate my life and I am a prayerful person. I am trusting Christ. When I'm at work, I pray. Do you pray when you're at work or you just gripe when you're at work? Do you just work when you're at work? Am I praying when I'm at work, when I'm on the field, when you're on the basketball floor, when you're on the baseball diamond, when you're on the soccer field? Do you pray when you're in a relationship? Are you praying in the night, the dark night of the soul or at nighttime? Are you praying for your one in your fear for the unknown before you hit click on the computer mouse? Are you praying It's all about prayerfulness and faithfulness on our part. And somehow, some reason or another, God has said, I just, I'm not working without prayer and without faith. That seems to be some of the message that we get here. Verse 28. When he comes to the house, Jesus comes to this house they're staying in. His disciples begin questioning him and they say, hey, why couldn't we do this? They're gonna save faith, so I'm not gonna ask that question in front of the crowd. They wait till they get in private, because he's probably gonna reprimand them, you know. He's like, hey, why couldn't we do this? And he says to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Why couldn't they cast out this demon? Or maybe a bigger question: what is missing as they follow Jesus? So I really think that's kind of the heart of what's going on here. We'd like to cast out a demon. But really, we, we see you doing these amazing things, and we want to be like you. What are we missing? What's missing in our, in our life here as we do our best to be like you? We're doing good, and we're trying to imitate Christ. The disciples are probably thinking, man, we need better prayers. The crowd is like, oh, we'll hold a prayer vigil. We'll have more prayers and powerful prayers. And the scribes are confident because they're awesome. They don't need prayer. The prayer that Jesus responded to was the imperfect, broken, probably to human ears, almost offensive prayer. That this helpless father prayed. Pray your awkward prayer. Pray your broken prayer. Pray your imperfect prayer. Pray and trust and believe and have faith. I want to say something else about this. They come off the mountain, glorious, heaven is revealed, Jesus is glowing. Peter's like, let's stay, this is amazing. And they come down to this ugly scene, ugly, ugly scene, right? All of the effects of, of, of sin in the world are being played out in this scene in front of them at this time. And it's just awful. Perversion of how to get to God, lack of faith and trust, demon possession, trying to murder him, people arguing with each other. It's just the ugliest of the ugly, you know, that he walks back down into. Here's what I, I, here's what I think the Holy Spirit put these two stories back to back. Why they happen the way that they do. Remember that in Jesus, he said, everything is fulfilled in me. Like the time has come. Everything will be seen in my glory. Then he goes down into this ugly evil and here's why I think I think it's a warning and a reminder to us that evil is in us and around us and here's what it wants to do it wants to own us and destroy us some of us treat evil like our pet gremlin you guys remember the movie gremlins we treat it like it's this warm fuzzy cute little pet that we can kind of keep around and use at our disposal when in reality it wants to rip your throat out evil is not our friend No matter how good it feels, no matter the little bump we get from it immediately, it is not your friend. It wants to destroy you. You think about this young man and what it's been doing to his body. It wants to kill him. I read this, that evil wants to dehumanize us. This this young man's not even acting like a person anymore. Evil wants to strip away that part of us that looks like God, that God image in us and dehumanize us, and abuse us, and ultimately kill us. Sin and evil are ugly, and they're destructive. I'm thinking in my head, well, that's just a kiss. That's just admiring beauty. That's just something to do with my spare time. That's just having fun with my friends. Some of us, man, in this room, we are so powerless in our walk And impotent in our prayer lives because we're consistently entertaining and flirting with evil. And we have lost this viewpoint of how ugly evil is and how it wants to destroy us. It wants to kill us. It's time for us to do some real battle with evil and to realize that some of the things that we enjoy, the enemy is using to destroy us. Are you ready for that battle? Are you ready? But I like it. But that makes me happy. Are you ready to just ask the question, God, is there enough evil in this thing that it's actually destroying me, even though it might bring me a little joy today? Some of us need to start to do battle. And I hear it, and you're like, what are you talking about? Could be sex sex and sexuality, which are not the same thing. Alcohol, entertainment, religion. Good things that can make us feel good, that can have just enough evil mixed into them that they're just killing us slowly all the time because that's what evil wants to do. It wants to take good things, pervert them, and use them to kill us. I think God is, in this text, graciously, pulling back the curtain and he's like, you know, I showed you the glory of Christ. Let me show you the ugliness of sin. Let me show you the evil and the ugliness that's in the world around you and in your heart. And it's trying to kill you. Let me show you what that looks like too, because these are your options. These are the things that I'm asking you to choose between my glory in you, giving yourself to evil. That's it. You guys, bow your heads, close your, your eyes real quick. Let me encourage some of you, man. You can have an imperfect faith because you have a perfect Savior. Are you encouraged by that? You can have an imperfect faith because we have a perfect Savior. He's not asking you to be perfect in everything you do, your prayers, your faith, or anything else. You can. Have faith, and you can falter and fail because you know Jesus Christ. You can struggle with unbelief. That's where we live most days, I think. Struggling to believe that God really is bigger than my problem. He really is bigger than my worst fear. He really is. That's a tough place, but that's life, that's daily life. Here's the good news for us this morning, those of us who are in that place. It doesn't depend on how much you believe. Amen? Who do you believe in? What's the object? Who's the object? Jesus is bigger. Jesus is bigger. He's bigger than that. So I asked you earlier, what's your biggest fear? So nobody look, I just want to walk through this little thought exercise. Nobody looking around. You would say, Pastor Joe, I've got something that scares me. It really does. It's kind of impending in my life. It's. I see it on the horizon or it's here right now and it's really big. And I've kind of, at that point where I'm like, God, if you can do anything about this, would you? But I'm not sure you can. Would you just put your hand up? Let's just be honest this morning. Maybe it's a child, a, a career decision, something the future health, and you're like, I'm just beat down, man. I don't know if anything can happen to this thing. Can you just take that little bit of faith to Jesus and pray a really bold prayer this morning and say, God, I don't know if I believe. Are you ready? Can you say that? I don't know if I believe you can do something about this. My hand's up, Lord. Here it is. If you can, would you? If you can, would you? God, please, would you? I'm having a hard time holding on here. God, of miracle's come. We're desperate. Remember Jesus in his glory, the Mount of Transfiguration. And here right now, if you had your hand up a second ago, just hear God whispering to your heart, I can, I can. Pray to me. I'm worthy of your prayers. Talk to me about this. Pray to me about this. Some of you need to pray about the evil that's in your heart. God, I've been flirting with evil. I've been trusting evil. Free me from that. Stop evil from looking so attractive to me, right? Change my heart. Let me see Christ as beautiful in my heart of hearts. Let me see him as being worthy. Keep me from evil. Whatever it is, wherever you're at in life, here's what I think Jesus would say to so many of us today. Pray, pray, just pray. Doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to be eloquent. Believe in who I am. Trust me with everything in your life. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for this promise. These promises that I think we find here, you don't reject us because we're imperfect. That's what draws you to us, I think. We come to you broken and we say, God, I'm having a hard time believing. Help me in my unbelief. God, of God, miracle's come. Hear our prayers right now. We're gonna sing one more time. Jim would sing that and then Wesley will close us out.